0: Welcome to the Artistic Finance Podcast, where we break down the wall between art and money. If you're here looking for how to be an artist and financially sustain a career, you're in the right place. Keep listening and join us as we learn about artists and how they make money work for them. Hello everyone, this is your host, Ethan Steimel, here for episode 47. Today's guest is Chip Close. He has spent the past 20 years balancing two different careers, one in hospitality and the other in the arts. Today's episode is jam-packed with great advice from him, so I want to get right into it. Links to everything we talk about are in the show notes and on our website, artisticfinance.com. And before we start, I want to give a special thank you to my Patreon patrons. Patrons get the shows early, with bonus content, and a private podcast feed that works with your podcast app. Remember the $3 level is going away in May and the lowest level will become $5. If you want in at the $3 level, become a patron before May 5th. If you want to support the show and access those things, do that at patreon.com artisticfinance Without further ado, let's get to our interview. Welcome Chip Close to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you uh, inviting me on. And just for context, for those listening 10 years from now, We are recording this on March 9th, 2021, so we are amidst the COVID-19 pandemic, and we're also amidst the Black Lives Matter slow burn in the United States, but also across
1: the whole world. It's been a tumultuous uh, 12 months, to say the least.
0: Yeah. Chip, could you sort of tell us how you got into your profession, what do you do, and where are you now in your career?
1: Yeah, so I've lived here in New York City for 18 years. I got my BFA in musical theater from the University of the Arts. Down in Center City, Philadelphia, I was going to be a performer. Uh, I came to the city um, with my uh, equity card, and I I worked for a while, and uh, very quickly though realized I'd say two years into that uh, that that wasn't going to be fulfilling to me, not in the long run. That I love uh, theater, I love musical theater, um, but I don't necessarily um, need to be a performer. Uh, eight shows a week is really hard. Uh, giving up all your nights, uh, your weekends, um, you know, looking ahead to the other things that I wanted in life, um, family. I I don't know how to juggle family. How do you do dinner time and make it a half hour? Um, so I started exploring other things. I started directing. Um, I started producing. I ran my own nonprofit theater company, uh, here in the city for uh, about five years. Um, we got a couple of drama desk nominations, uh, produced a couple of world premieres. It was terribly exciting. We can talk about that if you want, but that's probably another podcast. Um, and uh, all of that kind of uh, landed me into writing, which is really what I do now. I'm a, a lyricist and a book writer. Uh, I've got a full-time collaborator. His name is Ben Roseberry. He's a, a brilliant composer, a uh, really gifted musician on his own, and uh, a performer as well. He's um, he's toured and been on Broadway and, and things like that. Um, the interesting thing, though, is that while I was pursuing that career, or while I was letting my career kind of evolve, um, I also kind of had a sideline career in hospitality, Uh, Because what do you do when you're an out of work actor and you come to New York City? You get a job uh, in a restaurant. And that's what I did. Uh, Not because I really wanted to, but just because that's what you did. That's what I was told to do. So I went and got a job as soon as I got here to the city and I started hosting and that didn't pay very well. So I figured out how to become a server and that did pay well. Um, and I presented myself as capable and qualified and intelligent um, and interestingly enough uh, I always say that I ha I've kind of had two parallel careers um, throughout my time here in in New York that on the one hand I was pursuing an artistic uh, career and all those endeavors uh, but on the other side to, to pay the bills in between things and 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 throughout um, I was working in restaurants so again hosting serving managing I was a maitre d I Um, I was an assistant general manager for years. I opened a ton of places, um, and, and that eventually, and I'm sure we'll get to this, but that eventually led me to, to kind of start my own business, which was, um, which was a restaurant consultant, um, like, like a, like a marketing agency, uh, which I've done and that's opened all kinds of other doors. So, so that's me. It's tough to put me in a box. Um, I've got kind of two different sides of my, of my life, but, um, but they've made for a really interesting kind of journey and, and I wouldn't change it. I really wouldn't.
0: Um, Yeah, putting people in boxes just doesn't work, especially in the arts. It's like, hey, tell us about yourself. What do you do? It's like, well, I'm a dancer and a voiceover artist and a producer and a...
1: (laughs) Right, (laughs) and we're coming into a really weird spot. Now, tell me if you feel this way, because long before the pandemic, but certainly with the pandemic, uh, has has kind of exacerbated this, but um, there are people who are good at a lot of different things, and um, by nature, being in the arts, you have to wear you know, a bunch of different hats, right? You've got to, I mean, the, the whole point of this show, right, is that you can't just focus on, on the artistic side of things. You've got to be a good business person. You've got to be able to manage your money uh, because we don't have a lot of those kind of guardrails that maybe people with regular jobs have that we've got to be um, even more on top of it. And that's a whole conversation that we don't have, which I appreciate you having that here on the podcast. Um, but at the same time, as we're learning all these different things that we're capable of doing and qualified to do, Um, there's also this pressure you hear a lot about personal brand right how do you present yourself to the world what what's the one thing that you want to be known for and and i struggle with that for a long time uh, because um because i wanted to be known in in that broadway community you know in the theater world um and yet all of the attention i was getting you know the places where people recognize me or know my name is in restaurants and and bars and and so what do I do with those two things? How do I hold those two things you know, at the same time? Artists
0: have to be more on top of their finances because they're going job to job, because they're often getting paid less, because they don't have that security. People look at them as, oh, they have absolutely no security and they're just going on the whims of whatever. And that's true. They are gig workers. But because of that, they have to be extra on top of their finances in order to get through all those downtimes.
1: Juggling your finances in an artistic career is something, is a conversation that I don't think we have enough. Again, I applaud you for doing this podcast, for you know, for opening up a dialogue and giving people a, a chance to just tune in and think about these things and to be able to talk about these things to your spouses, to your friends, to your family. Um, colleagues, you know, like it's all part, like I love talking personal finance now because, because I was so bad at it for a long time. And now, especially when I, I'm like, oh man, all right, let me talk. Let me talk. All right. We got to talk IRAs. let, Let me talk. What's your portfolio look like? I love talking about that, but it took me a long time to get there.
0: I mean, people don't want to talk about it. Well, I'll talk about it. I have no problem talking about it. But that being said, even my spouse, she listens to the podcast. And then we have to then dialogue about something in our own finances. She'll say, so you said you didn't pay your credit card. Um, Can we talk about that?
1: (laughs) But it's true. I mean, this is a very intimate thing, you know, what we do with money, how we how we think about money. I mean, surely, you know, this, but, you know, money is not just, you know, paying for stuff, but it's it's all tied into value and self-worth and 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 status and. And what we believe about ourselves and about the world it's a really loaded topic and especially as artists when you spend much more time not working than you will spend working for most of us um, that's really that's really loaded if we you know, because when we suddenly you know, value our contributions, uh, artistically or, or otherwise, when we tie that to how much we get paid for those things, I think it's a really scary, dangerous thing. And um, yet at the same time, uh, it's an important conversation. Well,
0: that's something I've discovered by doing this, is I'm not a spiritual person. I'm certainly not religious, but I'm also not spiritual. And in episode 27, we talked about MMT, and the guest said, you know, debt is morality. And he pointed me to a resource to go read about it, and I went and I did it, and it was like, holy cow, if you go look back at all the ancient religious texts, like the Jewish law, 90% of it is about money and how to conduct yourself in that sense. And so that just opened my eyes, was something I discovered not even planning on it. And then so many people have said, it's spiritual, it's emotional, it's this, and that's true. I think we all sort of know that. But some people who sort of are really on top of their finances have taken that like the extra step of it's, it's become a part of them. Like they have to align it with
1: their ethics and stuff like that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Not, not for nothing as an aside to this whole thing. Um, I have my own podcast. It's called Restaurant Strategy, which has really been kind of an offshoot of the work I do with my, my side hustle that became my main business. Um, but I'm prepping for uh, an episode that's going to air next week. And it's all about transactions price and value. And I'm specifically speaking with restaurant owners and chefs and, and trying to understand or, or get them to understand that, you know, that that transactions are a trade between two entities, right? And it's not just you giving them a stake in exchange for $35, that there's more that's being traded, right? That on the side of the merchant, for example, on the chef, it's um, your creativity, your experience, your expertise, um, the skill set, all of that goes into uh, that dish. And on the other side, right, aside from price, the consumer brings to the table their time, right? They're giving up their time, um, their trust, right? These are these are huge, huge things. So aside from the money, right, our hard-earned money, uh, we're giving up something else. And to really understand that, you know, that a transaction is a trade between two entities, between two people. I'm giving you this and in exchange, you're giving me this. And it goes beyond just the price. And it's all tied into this larger conversation of money. Um, it's something I think about uh, quite a bit. And like I said, I- I'm glad to be on this uh, podcast having the conversation with you about it.
0: Nice, nice. Okay, your demographics. Could you describe your demographics for
1: us? I'm uh, male, he, him. Um, I am Caucasian. I turned 40 during the quarantine. I am married. Uh, I've got a beautiful wife and we have a son uh which has been great. Yeah, we've been married for 15 years and my son is 5, almost 6, and it's been a um, a long uh, but wonderful year of all being stuck in the same uh Brooklyn apartment. You know, it's we're we're all going a little stir crazy, but it's been really good to have um to have the time all together. So I I wouldn't trade that even though I do want him to be at school more. Um that I grew up uh outside of Philadelphia in kind of a middle-class suburb. Um my dad worked. My mom uh, didn't work when we were young, but then started doing a lot of really interesting kind of side jobs and side hustles, and turned that into a side business that became a, a pretty powerful engine for her. So uh, it doesn't—it's uh, not surprising that I've done you know similar things with uh, with my life and my career. Fantastic.
0: What is a live event that you like to experience as an audience member?
1: Obviously, I'm dying to get back to a Broadway show, and really, honestly, I really miss the ballet. We were season ticket holders. Uh, for many many years at New York City Ballet, um, I love ballet. I, I kind of um, once I discovered it, once I realized I really wanted to pursue musical theater uh, in high school, I was just like, oh, I got to double down on dance, and I and I discovered ballet. Um, I was given uh, full scholarships because I was a guy and I could um, I could lend my arms in a partnering class, and so. Um, that opened up, that opened up doors that opened up opportunities for me. And it really kind of, um, bred this love of the ballet. There's nothing like, uh, I still call it the New York state theater. Cause that's what it will be forever, uh, at Lincoln center. Um, it, it's a, it's a brilliant space. I think, uh, they're an extraordinary company. Their dedication to, um, to, you know, to new works and developing, you know, young talent as far as choreographers, um, it's second to none. And I think, I just think the talent the talent within that uh, organization is uh, is unparalleled and so we've always loved going that and I and I really miss that
0: nice nice
1: what is a piece of art that you like i'm going to stick with the ballet theme uh, because we've uh, we've really watched uh, justin peck uh, come up uh, so justin peck was uh, a young uh, member of the corps then he got elevated to a soloist in new york city ballet uh, and then he started choreographing and he became a resident choreographer with the company uh, which is his role now and so they pretty much um, they present, I don't know, two, three, four premieres of his every single season. Um, and I think he's the kind of talent, you know, along the lines of a Jerome Robbins or George Balanchine, um, or Chris, uh, Chris Wieldon. I just think he's, you know, once in a, once in a generation really. And, uh, his works like Everywhere We Go and Year of the Rabbit, if anybody has not seen them, they transcend. You don't have to be uh, a ballet fan to to get something out of these works. They're, uh, they're smart and, um, and thought provoking and funny. You know, you don't think of ballet as being funny, but they are um, year of the rabbit in particular. Um, and I miss being able, we would try to go see that once a year, once every other year, since it premiered like six years ago, seven years ago, we would try to go back every year to see it um, because I just, I get new things from it. I, I just love, um, you know, it's like a live event. I love the, um, the, the, the brilliance of a, of a live event. It's fleeting. You know, the, what I remembered of the piece three years ago is different than what I'll get from it today is different than I'll get from it two years from now. And yet it's the same steps, same costumes, same lighting. Um, and, and I just, I I love that. Are you bad or good with money? It's a great question. I used to be really bad with money. And I've since gotten to be very, very good at money. I've got really good fiscal literacy now. Uh, but I didn't have that in my, in my 20s and I'll say like early 30s. What, did, um, did you like learn it over
0: years or was there sort of like a snap moment where you like read a book and something clicked?
1: You know, I can point to a couple of books that I read that really changed how I think about money. As cliche as it sounds, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I, I remember reading that. Uh, you've read it? Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> who hasn't, Chip? Who hasn't read that book? No, I'm surprised <laughs> that a lot of people. I was talking to a friend of mine who also celebrated his 40th birthday in quarantine and just this idea. He had never heard the term passive income. And because he was asking me, like, what I'm doing. And I said, you know, I- I'm tired of working for money. I'm tired of trading time for money. And, uh, and uh, to be honest, now now we'll bring this conversation a little bit full circle. So when we go back to my artistic career, being an actor, I can remember walking into Tommy Toon's apartment. He used to have this penthouse at 89th and Madison. And my wife was doing a show with him. And he threw a Christmas party that year. And we all got invited, everybody, the whole cast and their spouses. And there I go. I show up to... 89th and Broadway or 89th and Madison and I never I was like how does an artist afford this and that's when I that I mean that's when I really learned about royalties I'd never heard about royalties before I never learned about it I never realized that okay like oh an actor gets you know two thousand dollars a week on Broadway but you know that a director get tens of thousands of dollars that a choreographer will get tens of thousands of dollars because of something and, and they're not even there they're not even working and that really shifted something in my brain um, it was right around the time when I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and I just, it suddenly passive income, uh, was on my, was on my brain. Um, and the other one was many, many years later, um, which was the four hour work week. Um, and it, again, that's a cliche too, because, um, cause everybody, you know, holds, uh, Tim Ferriss up on this, uh, up on this pedestal, but the way he was able to reframe certain things and the, and the way, the conversations he forces you to have of like, you know, what do you need this money for? Like, what are you living for? And, and to really answer those kind of deeper questions about purpose, which, again, we get into this money as a loaded thing.
0: And, and what Tim Ferriss does is he simplifies it money is not complicated. Everybody has to do their taxes. 400 million people in America have to do their taxes every year. So it's not like this thing that nobody knows how to do. 400 million people know how to do this because they have to do it every year. And Tim Ferriss in the four hour work week. Yeah, he's a little abrasive. He's a little rough around the edges. If you're not into that direct answering honest questions, you know, within yourself, he says, stop pretending like it's complicated. Stop pretending like you don't know how to do it. Here's
1: a book. Very simple and i always love it because he just brings new perspective to the conversation he says you know i didn't understand why we have to work and work and work and work and work and work and put away huge chunks of money so that when we're old and we can't do anything we're okay right and and he's like you know and so he talks about this idea of of mini retirements right that he would work for a year and take 3 months off or work for 3 years and then take a year off and you know this was part of his thing and you know and they go hand in hand rich dad poor dad and this i mean this this idea of like you know rather than you know taking on debt you know just find something create a revenue stream and then when it kicks you know a chunk of money every month you say great now i have that money to spend now i you know what am i going to do with with that money and i think it's a it's an interesting way and i had never looked at money in that way so i made it through my 20s really thinking you know um going on a um like a survivalist mindset um partially as you know, I found myself working in restaurants and saving up, saving up, saving up, saving up so I could go do that gig that didn't pay very well or didn't pay at all. But I knew it was going to be a credit on my resume. I knew that it was going to allow me to network. I was going to get to meet people. Um, and, and I did that for a long time. It's why I never really, I felt like I never really got ahead with my finances. So your your uh, your simple question of, uh, am I good with money or bad with money? I, I was I was bad with money and now I am better with money.
0: So I guess, tell us, can you expand a little bit more on sort of what you do with this restaurant tiering and like how it started as a side hustle? And then at what point did you sort of lean into it to sort of say, oh, this could fuel my artistic life?
1: Yeah, it's I mean, it's a great question. That's the conversation I wanted to have here, which is, you know, so much about this personal brand and, you know, understanding your your skill sets. And, you know, so much again, I, I mentioned a, a little while ago, you know, this idea, you know, that this conversation around transactions, price, and value, and really people understanding the value, what they bring to the table, and, and how you can help people. So strangely enough, so in 2012, I, I got a job at uh, at Gotham down in the village. I found a really good home there. Um, they really treated me well, and, and I was a captain there. Gotham Bar and Grill is a fine dining restaurant in the village. It has become an institution. Pre-pandemic, it had been open 36 years. It closed uh, during the pandemic. And uh, they're looking to reopen, but it's unclear at this point. Um, I was a captain there, which is basically uh, like a waiter, like a like a like an upscale waiter. The, you know, nice restaurants have, have captains instead of waiters, captains instead of servers. Because you're in charge of a section, you're in charge of a staff below you. You know, you've got a front waiter, a back waiter, a runner, a barista. There are people that you are kind of responsible for in your station. Um, so there's more that you have to do than just take orders and bring them the food you know, in in a more casual restaurant.
0: Okay. Wait, sorry, sorry, sorry. Because I've just never had the restaurant side hustle. Did you like start as just a waiter called a waiter? And then after a while they said, okay, you've been here a while. Now you can be captain.
1: (laughs) No, it's a great question. By the time I started at Gotham, I had built a pretty good resume. So I just got hired as a captain. And that's, that's what I was at Gotham. And in fact, and how did you build that resume just being a waiter at other places? So when I came to the city, Uh, I got a job at Bluefin, which is in Times Square at 47th Street, still there. I ate there one time. Yeah, it's uh, wildly overpriced, which is good for a waiter. Um, But I got a job there as a host, and I was making $10 an hour when I moved to the city, and I quickly realized that was not going to pay my bills. And I had a good nest egg because I had been working so much in theater in Philadelphia, and I just socked away a lot of money. But I came to the city, and I realized, oh, this nest egg is not going to last long at $10 an hour, 35 hours a week. So I elbowed my way into a server position, uh, you know, a waiter position, uh, which paid much, much, much better. So the difference of making $10 an hour to, I'll say, $250 a night, right? So huge growth. And so I did that for a while. Um, I worked there for about two years. And then I found another job as part of an opening team at another restaurant that was connected to a restaurant where my wife was working. And I opened a restaurant for them, and they were opening another restaurant. I went and opened that restaurant for them. That landed me to another place, another place, and it just kind of happened like that. I bounced around, and through that, I had built up a resume. I went from host to server uh, to captain to then manager. I started managing there uh, because if you uh, present yourself as knowledgeable and, um, <laughs> and uh, I don't know, respectful and, and capable, uh, you will become that, and so I ended up doing that, and I started opening a lot of places, which was exciting and uh, super stressful. And so that was pretty much my life up until about 2012. And in 2012, that's when I went to go work at Gotham. And I specifically wanted a change of pace. I didn't want um, the energy and the excitement of an opening. I wanted something um, stable. I wanted something you know where I could just show up every day, do my job, make a good paycheck, and go home. Again, because uh, my wife and I were starting to look at, uh, at starting a family, and uh, that was part of our future. Interestingly, though the longer I was there, like that was good in the beginning. 2012, good. 13, good. 14, good. 15, I was starting to get really bored with it because it's the same thing every single day. Pretty much the same menu, same table, same guests, same over and over and over again. And the whole idea of a day job is that it frees you up um, to be able to work on uh, your artistic pursuits or whatever else you're trying to do, which it did, right? I don't take my work home with me, um, or at least I wasn't then. It was just you know, clock in, do my job, clock out. Uh, but what I was finding is that the six, seven, eight hours that I was at work, I couldn't help but feel like I was wasting. Like, like this was good creative time I could be spending doing other things. So while I was at Gotham, I started uh, working on their marketing. They didn't really have anybody to do it, so I was helping them. Uh, I was a photographer. I've been a an amateur photographer since high school, and it was always just a hobby of mine. And I knew I was kind of good enough to take some pictures. They didn't really have anybody taking pictures. Social media is taking off in 2015 and 16. I said, I think you need somebody to take really good pictures here and post uh, to uh, social media. It's becoming a really big deal. And so I started taking pictures and I took over the social media feeds. And then that eventually led me to do some graphic design work for them because I had taught myself how to do that through running the theater company. And again, one of these skill sets that I don't know where to, what to do with it, but I knew that it had value. Um, so I started doing some, uh, graphic design for them and that led me to, uh, designing their e-blasts and, and doing that. And then suddenly they realized, oh, I had all this operational knowledge of restaurants, right? Uh, having worked in restaurants for so long that they started bringing me into, you know, you know, into other conversations. Um, I, I kind of, you know, reworked their blog and, and reintroduced that and started working on promotions and different events with them and on and on and on. Uh, suddenly Within I guess the course of nine months or so, I was doing a whole lot for them, and wasn't waiting tables anymore and so I went, huh, all these skills that i'd really honed in my artistic life have direct applications and have value in the restaurant side where I don't have to be stuck on the floor for forty fifty hours a week i can I can really use my creative um, again my creative skill set and leverage all that knowledge of having worked in restaurants for so long and uh, and 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 help them in a different way and i used that and i just i basically said and this is where the side hustle really came up i just thought i'm doing this for this company i bet i can do this for other companies so i started reaching out to my network i started reaching out to people i knew or and and saying hey is there anybody you know and i started bringing on restaurant clients i said this is what i can do this is why i think you need it this is how much i charge do you want me to do it and the rest is kind of history. I just started bringing out, you know, bringing on clients, more clients, more clients. And they would be with me for a while and then they would fade away. And then I'd bring on new clients and then eventually they would fade away. It was just kind of a a natural attrition. Um, But it really stemmed from that idea of like, so really I looked back and I said, I don't make that much money. I mean, at the restaurant, I was making, I don't know, $70,000 a year, $75,000 a year. And I just thought, That's not $200,000 a year. So we're talking about, I mean, you know, when you look at finances, you break it down. You say, $70,000 a year, that's about $1,300 a week. Okay, that's about $5,000 a month. Okay, so $5,000 a month, that's really all I need? And so I started going and saying, okay, what if I could sell my services back then? I I was like, okay, well, if I could get five clients for a 1000 bucks each, that's my... That's my. That's all I need, and I've just determined that. I just said, I'm paying all my bills on this number. You know, all I have to do is replace it, and I bet you I could do this on 10 or 20 hours a week as opposed to 40 hours on my feet in a restaurant, um, and it would be more interesting work, and that's really where it started. So this side hustle then, it was me looking at my finances and really understanding what am I doing here in New York City, right? Like I'm here to pursue a career in the theater. I'm here to be creative, to surround myself and and to be part of that conversation. And all I need, I'm looking at my at my bank statements, all I need is about $5,000 a week to just, you know, to to um to provide for that lifestyle, to give me the opportunity to write and to and 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 to do that. And then I started looking at it and say, "Okay, and if i want to if I want more in my life, then, well, how would I make seven thousand dollars a month? And what does that look like? And then what what would that be able to afford me? Does that mean I get to put in more savings that I, I can really you know double down on my house savings every month, or put away from my son's you know college education or or whatever? but it was it was compartmentalizing that and just saying, "I actually don't need that much. If I had to replace twenty thousand dollars of monthly income, okay that that's a tough nut to crack but all I went is I, I just broke it down and and so I just started getting more clients and more clients and more clients and before long I, I had a little business for myself
0: okay that's amazing in the simplicity and especially in the arts with all these gig working all these part-time jobs is that's not something you have to snap do overnight you don't ha- just have to say okay today I'm not doing that side hustle and I'm going to start my own thing you can continue on your job Start building the side hustle. You need 5000 a month. Well, work your way up to 1000 A couple months later, you're at 2000 at $3,000. And then once you get up to that 5000 you say, oh, now I can actually quit that job. You could set a plan to try to do this over the course of a year or some, some very easy segue into it. And
1: you know what I did is I, start, I, I gave myself little carrots along the way. I said, once I get three clients at, you know, for $3,000 a month, I'm going to give up one night of work a week. Instead of working four nights a week, I'm just going to work three. And once I get to $4,000 a month, I'm going to get rid of two nights. So I started scaling back my schedule, and I had specific things. What am I going to do with those, those free nights now? Okay, well, I'm going to make sure I'm writing at least four of those, or I'm going to make sure one of those nights a week, I'm going to try to watch a new movie I've never seen, or read a new script I've never seen, or spend you know, meaningful time reading. So you've got to make sure also to replace that you know, to understand that this is going to get you more time and, and how are you going to fill that time? How are you going to keep it meaningful and uh, and productive? At least for me, that's what I really needed to to make sure it stayed productive. It wasn't just Netflix time, it wasn't just you know you know slacking off you know playing Nintendo. It was it was, you know, how can I, um, how can I use this time to be more productive to get myself closer to the other um, the other ambitions that I have?
0: Saving money, so much of the financial advice out there is about budgeting, is about that survival mindset of like, how can you, you know, get your expenses to be so low? Well, you can only take them so low and saving is important. Saving is super important, but investing is what you need to be doing. So if you're saving but not investing, you're not living your healthy financial life. And that's that same way of making this plan and getting freeing up your time is only as valuable as what you do with that
1: time. It has to do with being purposeful with what you do. So, uh, you know, we joked around, um, we're we're doing this uh, Zoom recording. You you won't be able to see the video on the podcast, but uh, behind me, I've got nothing but lists. I am a list maker. I'm I'm a crazy list maker. Um, I I write down my goals. I break them down into weekly, monthly, and quarterly, you know, actions to achieve those goals because uh, it's nice to have a goal, but unless you've got a, a kind of a roadmap for accomplishing that, then who cares? you know, it's just going to sit there on the board. But um, I always say that like a goal isn't a goal until it's written down. It's committed to paper. Um, It's stuck on a wall. It's Even if it's on a a post-it note, whatever, it's got to be there and saying, this is something I'm going after. And then breaking it down to how are you going to get there, right? Like we've made the plan to save for a house. And here in the New York City area, um, it's a nightmare. If you want to be within 45 minutes or an hour of the city, um, it's expensive. And so You know, we kind of stuck a number on the wall, and we say, "Okay, then what's the path to getting there? How are we, how are we going to going, how are we going to get to that?" And you know, hundred and fifty thousand dollars in house savings doesn't just appear one day. You know, short of a windfall, Um, it it gets there. You know, bit by bit, you know, little by little, putting a plan into place, and um, and it's the it's the same thing. And you know, when we talk about that that side hustle, it's all part of that same conversation. How can it, you know, first and foremost for me, replace the income uh, of doing things I didn't necessarily want to be doing, things that were really boring? And, you know, then how can we use it uh, to grow it into a career, into a real profession uh, where it's doing all kinds of other things?
0: I just yesterday listened to a podcast episode on purchasing a home. And I think you should listen to this episode since you're saving up the Millennial Investing Podcast don't destroy your wealth and freedom with scott trench and minnie jensen they are both real estate investors but they come on to talk about how people who aren't real estate investors can help themselves with how they purchase that home i listened to it and i thought every single theater person who has dreams or hopes of purchasing a home need to listen to this so that they think about This thing, anyway. So that's a big side tangent, and I don't know why I'm promoting another podcast that I have no connection to. We should
1: always promote the pod. There's a wealth of knowledge available out there uh, in the world uh, through podcasts, or you know, whatever it is that we should, you know, all all boats, all boats rise. And so I think the more that we can help each other, we're all just trying to to figure things out, and uh, some people have figured things out and uh, in one area and not others, and. We should just share the stuff we know and ask for help when we uh, when we need help. And and this is another thing that sort of goes back to that four-hour work week discussion.
0: The knowledge is out there. YouTube University is a thing. If you want to know how to do something, you can do it. Like I, myself, I've had two episodes on day trading. I'm not going to day trade. I'm not a day trader, but I've talked to two people who do it, and I have a pretty good idea how I could start, you know? <laughs> and same thing with restaurant marketing. I don't know anything how to do it, but I could listen to your podcast And I'm sure that I could learn it and start getting clients in like a week or two if I wanted, if I wanted. (laughs) It comes back to that point of, we have to talk about it because things aren't complicated. We overly complicate them. We come up with excuses without even trying. We were talking about putting people in boxes and how do you balance that? I'm a restauranteur, I'm a restaurant marketer versus I'm a writer, a performer, artist. And the question I normally ask is, What separates those that have a full-time career in the arts from those that never get started or do it for a while and transition out? It's a complicated topic. Yeah, I'm a lighting designer. I'm now also a podcaster. (laughs) You know, where do I put myself? So with you maybe tweaking that question or what is, I guess, what is your answer to that question and how does it work? What do you say you are? This idea of,
1: of giving up or making it or not making it I think really needs to be scrubbed. And I think places of higher education or people in the industry um, can and should do a better job of reframing this. I think it's really hard to have an understanding of what any industry is like. And this is right with finance, right? Like my brother's, um, my brother's a bond trader and he was like, oh yeah, most people just can't hack it. Not because they can't do it, not because they're not capable, but they just didn't realize what it was. And they realize that that's not for them and and so it's not that they couldn't make it it's just they couldn't they, they couldn't do what's required you know at your desk every day at seven you're you leave your desk at six thirty or 7 at night and then you're usually entertaining clients and yeah you get to go to great restaurants and sporting events and, and golf courses and stuff like that but like that's 7 a.m to 10 p.m three four nights a week the other two you're done at you know 7 you get home by seven thirty or 8 and you're so, you're too exhausted to even, you know, uh, to even do much after that. Like, so I think this idea of like, of making it, of, of giving up or, 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 or not cutting it or whatever, I I would like to, I, I hope we can reframe this because I, I went through a really hard time, you know, as I was kind of transitioning out of performing and, and I remember, I mean, I was on stage, I was working when I just thought. I think I'm phoning this in. I don't think this is for me. I don't think this is what I, what I want to do. And I was doing a show that I love, but I was doing my third production of it uh, because, you know, as is often the case in theater, um, they just they only have six days to put up the show, and so they need somebody who knows it. They know somebody who knows all the lines, knows the track, and I mean, certainly Chorus Line is like this. Cats is like this. I did Forever Plaid. Forever Plaid is like that. It's four people, one you know, piano player and we just need people who can learn it in six days and the people who can learn it in six days are the people who already know it. And, and that's great, but I don't think that's artistic. I don't think that's creative. That's not art in the way that I wanted to do it. And that's not something I needed to be a part of. I think it's difficult. You know, the idea of working is great and glamorous, but understanding what eight shows a week is like and, and put, uh, put-ins and brush-ups and, and all the things that are required of you throughout the week you know, week after week after week, year after year, or likewise, you know, the idea of what a lifestyle is like uh, for an actor, for example, when you're not working, what it's like to do a day job, something you're not qualified to do, you're not particularly passionate about, and that's a hard life, and then having to audition or take class all day, um, and then run to the restaurant at night, that's a, that's a really shitty lifestyle unless you really want it. And, uh, and the same is true. You know, I, I know designers, um, who have worked with big designers and, you know, when they understood like, Oh, I have to work in a, in a studio, in a firm. I'm, I'm one of several designers supporting, uh, the main designer who gets credit. And I don't, I don't see any way. And I, I remember talking to friends of mine, like, I don't quite see a path forward for me to get where she is at, you know, in the next five years, 10 years. It's not like it was 20 years ago. Um, there, it's just a machine now. And, and, and so, and I think that's a, that's a, that's a conversation. So that's the first piece of this. The other piece of it is just understanding. And I think this has to do with self-awareness, which is that, you know, understanding all the things that you enjoy, that you're passionate about, All the things that you're good at and it's this conversation of value how could you be of value to people i was of value to restaurants as a waiter because they needed competent qualified intelligent well-spoken individuals who were going to be able to sell their food and take care of guests um well every single night great i can do that and i did that for a long time um but there's other value i bring to the table as a photographer as a writer um, as a, as a, you know, as a marketer, being able to help, you know, restaurant tours, you know, see different things. Now as a podcaster, I bring value to, um, to, to, a bunch of listeners every single week as they, you know, as I'm just helping them see different tactics, different ideas, different ways of doing things, helping them put together a strategy. And so I will, I would say that it has to do with, I think, thinking of all the things that you enjoy uh, the things that you're passionate about, the things that you are um that you are good at, and how can you provide value to other people and and to not be afraid of of blurring the lines and and having different parts of yourself as long as you're helping people as long as you're providing providing them with something they need, I think you'll find your way and 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 there's no uh, there shouldn't be any hard feelings about I went one path versus the other or I realized that path wasn't for me and I found my own path. And I think that's something we don't talk about enough.
0: Your income right now, because it's mainly this uh, restaurant marketing, is that W-2 income or is that 1099 income?
1: 1099.
0: Okay, and so then
1: are you paying quarterly taxes? I don't because I can't be bothered. I would prefer to pay the tenal- the penalty at the end of the year because that's the hourly, like I've just done the hourly math, right? The opportunity cost of that. Like I'd rather pay the penalty at the end of the year. Um, I keep really good... Um, my clients are not good about paying me, uh, in the month or in the quarter. And so that just complicates it. And so, and I, I want to maintain a certain relationship with my clients where I'm just really laid back I say, no, 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 no rush. You, you pay me when you need to pay me and all that. Maybe it comes a month later, two months late. Um, so yeah, so it's all, I just pay it all at the end of the year. It's easier for my life to just kind of um, keep it all in mind that way.
0: I'm actually really happy you said that because this is another thing where people worry, oh, I need to be paying quarterly or I was paying quarterly or I'm going to get a fine. Okay, it's a mistake. People make mistakes. There are plenty of other people who don't pay quarterly. You're doing it intentionally, but if you do it accidentally, it's just a mistake. Everything is solvable by paying a fee or paying a fine or something. You don't want to get a parking ticket if you don't have to. But if you do, it's a part of life.
1: And again, I just did it in a deliberate way because I just thought, okay, what's an hour of my life worth? Okay, it's gonna take me two hours to file quarterly taxes, and I got to do that four times a year. So two times four, it's eight hours of my. No, it's not. It's not worth that. You know what I'm. What I get hourly when I work with my clients or when I'm on a a photo shoot or, or or whatever. It's not worth it. I'd rather pay the 75 bucks, the 100 bucks, the 200 bucks.
0: Do you file your own taxes and do you have sort of an entity set up or do you just get all paychecks to chip
1: close? It's a great question. Um, I don't have an entity set up because I was, um, I was given the guidance not to yet, um, that it's okay to run as a sole proprietor given the size of my business. Um, whether that was good advice or bad advice, I don't know. But um, I trusted the lawyer, I trusted the accountant, so I went with it. So I run as a sole proprietor right now. Uh, I do TurboTax, um, and I actually really love it because it's given me it's given me a better view of my money. It, it, it's all part of that money conversation. Um, that eventually there will come a time when I'll probably want to bring a CPA into it. But I just find that a lot of CPAs, or my experience in the past, is that they're so swarmed. And um, this is probably not the case for everyone, and this is just my experience. But I found that there were um, that I just didn't get any other time. I couldn't ask questions. It was just like we have so many taxes to do, and my tax situation is unique and it's complicated. And I just want somebody who's gonna who's gonna really dig into it. And I just found I wasn't getting that um, wasn't getting that personalized attention. So I just thought, okay, I'm gonna dig in. I'm gonna learn everything I need to learn about this. I'm gonna know it. And um, and so I do TurboTax and I pay for the extra like the little like 24 hour support where I can talk with a CPA. You know, they come on the little video chat and. I can have them take a look at certain sections and I can ask them questions. That's worth the money to me. Chip, I love that you said that because
0: not only are you getting 1099 income, which is what sort of overwhelms people with itemizations and deductions. And so everyone says, oh, I'm going to go get an accountant. I tell people to get an accountant because it's like they know it. You don't. Easy peasy.
1: But I love that you're doing it. You know, you just have to be organized. You got to know, you know, all your gigs and you got to make sure you get all your 1099s when they're supposed to come. And just like you go for all your investment accounts, you're printing out all your investment account and you know, all your all those 1099s, the the miscellaneous, the G's, you know, all of that. And at the end, it it comes and you put it all together. And I'm I'm maniacal about my expenses. Um, I put everything on one card so it's all tracked there because I can't be bothered with with receipts. It's all you know. So you know, and everything is pretty much purchased online now anyway. So there's there's a tra- you know there's a, a track for it. Um, tracking so I'm tracking for it. So I'm really crazy. I mean, I sit down and because my schedule C is like, I mean, I, I some years, what last year, 2019, I think I had $17,000 in expenses. I mean, like a real number.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The reason I started this podcast was because I took advice from my mentors and peers who told me, Ethan, as a lighting designer, you need to form an entity, form an LLC, et cetera. They told me this. So I opened one up. Then I got to tax time and the accountant said, well, that doesn't do anything for you. You don't need it. And I have now had this entity. So I've now had this entity for seven years. All it is is a pain in my neck. I did that on advice from peers who I thought they knew what they were doing. It made sense to me at the time, so I thought I was making the right decision. But I've done nothing with the LLC. I just have the LLC. I don't use it. And it's just dragging, you know what, Chip, I'm going to go close it today.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's probably valuable, but just, you know, especially in New York, you got to do those, you know, the, uh, every other year you gotta, you know, you gotta file and, you know, then you gotta work up the, the K1. It's like, I just, I looked at it and I just thought, nope, I don't need it. Nope. It was, it's abs- I advise people
0: not to do it. If, if you're going to get to a point where you need an LLC or an entity, someone is going to tell you that and, or you're going to decide for yourself. It's not like, oh, well, I can't switch now. You can open one up at any moment. But man, do not go do it. Because I was trying to do everything right. Like, it was just the wrong decision.
1: Well, and it also has to do with, again, it's generational. And it also has to do with, um, with the level that they're working. Because there's a point when an LLC makes sense, especially if you've got a lot of people under you, um, because you want some of the business protections that come from that. So if you're subcontracting, um, that's one reason to do it. Um, and then, But then the other side is that once you get big enough, You'll actually want to incorporate, because I know a bunch of Broadway directors and, and choreographers you know, who have you know, multiple companies of a show, and they don't want all that money running through, so they want to park it somewhere and just be able to pay you know, corporate taxes right. on it.
0: But I will say, I had John Lee Beatty, who is a very well-established designer, has multiple shows giving him royalties, etc., and he does not have an entity, and he's the top of his game. You absolutely don't need it.
1: Yeah, it's listen, you make sure you're getting advice from multiple places. I think that's probably the, the best the best thing to say.
0: What is some financial advice that you would give yourself back when you started your career? Or would you give another actor or artist that's starting their career right now?
1: No matter how little money you make, there's always something to put aside, to set aside, right? Open up the IRA at 22, even if it means you can just put in $10 a week that's okay you're going to thank yourself 5 years later 10 years later commit yourself to a number right like it's now it's really easy to max out the ira now right like but that seemed so overwhelming to me before you know when i was looking at it so just start small and 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 commit to it um, and commit to saving every single week and invest it when i say saving like very little should go in your savings account savings account is like oh crap i just you know I just lost my job. I just got hit by a but right? It's just enough to, you know, in an emergency. But otherwise, I, I think all your savings should be invested. And it can be invested um, modestly or conservatively, rather. Um, but I think it'll just grow in a meaningful way there. Um, and so whatever that number is, come up with your buckets. You know, your your retirement account, like an IRA, and, you know, a savings, like a house savings or, or whatever, have that bucket, a, a college savings, whatever you want to save for, just put those little buckets and commit to doing it every single week in whatever way you can. And don't touch it. Don't change it. Put it on automatic. I wish I had done that. It's something I got really good at doing at 33, 34. And I wish i had gotten really good at that at 23, 24.
0: I love that you're being honest with us. Because I know that there is somebody that is 33 or 34 who is listening to this and doesn't have an IRA or doesn't have a retirement account. And I know they're thinking, it's too late for me. Like, I'm way behind. I'm overwhelmed. And you're here at 40. So six, seven, eight years after that. And you're in very good shape, (laughs) I think. (laughs) Um, But you don't have to, if you didn't start it at 22, it's okay you can start now. Like, you're not going to die tomorrow. Even if you're listening to this and you're 65, that's not too late. Oh, I didn't do it at 23 right when I started my life. Well, yeah, of course, you were busy, you were hustling, you were trying to get work. Nobody does it. Well, everyone
1: should do it. Everyone do it. Everyone go do it. <laughs> you you, you have, I mean, you really, you really, really have to. And again, once I did the IRA and I started doing that, then I was like, oh, then I started learning again, more about personal finance. And, you know, I opened up. You know, an e-trade account. I opened up, you know, a regular kind of brokerage account with Vanguard. I, you know, I, I then I opened up myself to other tools, and I just started putting things on just automatic, automatic every week. Every week, I get paid on Friday. The investments go on Monday.
0: And I just want to mention Vanguard because you've mentioned it a couple times. So Vanguard is just known for having low-cost ETFs. So if you put money into a retirement account or a brokerage account, and you just want to match the market, just put it into a Vanguard SP 500. Or an international stocks index fund, they're just known for having low-cost index funds. So that's why you keep saying that it's not a magical account.
1: <laughs> yeah, they're they're really. It's like you know, just a couple of basis points, right? Which is it's judged by like how much the management fees, you know, how much of your money they take out, and you want something, you know, if it's anywhere close to like one, it, it's way too high. You're gonna you know lose a lot of your earnings from that. So you know Vanguard funds will have like 0.08 they'll be really really low which means you get to keep more of your money you get to reinvest more of your money and it just grows faster and faster and faster and it's been proven i mean you know the the company's been around for uh, decades now and you know when everybody else was trying to get uh, money managers and and fund managers to to beat the the market they basically said we can put together you know a variety of index funds that'll match the market or maybe Um, Maybe beat it at certain points, but that's still going to grow your money, you know, ten percent, twelve percent every single year. And you know the the power of compounding interest. It's like it's real.
0: If you take five minutes to look up what should I put my investment or my retirement money in, the answer is always going to be index funds, specifically S and P five hundred if you're in the United States. But I'll tell you what, I have a financial advisor. I give them money. What did they do with it? They put it in Vanguard funds. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and they have a fiduciary responsibility to tell me and to to put my money in the safest that they can. And yes, I hope they're not listening because I probably don't need the financial advisor because they're literally only doing
1: what I would do without them. That's hilarious. You know, it's funny. I was talking to a buddy of mine, and this is the thing that keeps a lot of people on the sidelines. Say, well, I don't know anything about it. I don't know where I'd put it. And here's the beauty. I didn't know anything either. And I went to Vanguard because my dad works at Vanguard. And he says, look, they've got all kinds of great tools and it's really easy. I mean, you just sign up online, it's very easy to get started. And they have target date funds. So you just say, you just do the math and you say, when are you going to be 65 or when are you going to be 70? When do you think you are going to uh, retire? And just invest in that. They will automatically rebalance it every year. They will, it will be um, much more aggressive, um, stock heavy in the early years. And as it gets closer to retirement, they will naturally balance it. The the money manager, the, the fund manager will balance it. So it's much more heavily weighted in stocks. So it's much more conservative. So it's not going to grow as much, but you're not going to take the risk of loss. And that's something you would do on your own. But if you just pick a target date fund, they'll do it all for you. And that's to keep you Uh, to, to get you in off the sidelines if you're on the sidelines saying well I don't know enough and I just need to do a little bit of research no start it put your money in a target date fund and then let it work while you're going to do research and then next year move the money move the money to say now i know more now i'm going to take half that money and put it in something more aggressive because you know i want to you know i want to take a little bit more risk you know i've got my son's uh, 529 account i have learned more about it and so i've got that very aggressively um uh invested right now because this year and we can get into that conversation right interest rates dropped i knew bonds were hardly going to grow everybody's going to dump their money in the stock market. And now the stock market's grown like crazy over the course of this pandemic. I mean, his return on his 529 account uh, was, I think, 32% this year. I'm not going to be able to count on 32% for the next (laughs) 13 years. uh, But for this year, it was the right move. And now I'm going to rebalance it as we get, I rebalance it at his birthday every year in July. And so I'll rethink, you know, I'll look at the strategy and rebalance it. But you can just start it.
0: Yeah. Starting is so important. Action is so important. Action versus inaction. Sitting is the new smoking. <laughs> Get up and go. <laughs> That's another thing the financial advisor did. Here I said they weren't doing anything. They looked at my wife. She has a 401k. So they looked at all the funds she was invested in in the 401k. And she, it was like 20 things because she was letting the company just sort of do it. And they said, "Okay, let's boil it down to these four, and one of those was a target date fund."
1: I bring it up because that's the biggest. If that's what's keeping you on the sideline, uh, they've got an answer for that, and uh, it should be it should be utilized. I feel like we've talked about this enough, so we could skip this question, but. What can
0: you and I do to stress the importance of finance and savings to our fellow artists?
1: Uh, just by being open to having conversations about it. Um, it's funny. My brother's a screenwriter out in L.A., and he's on kind of like a similar journey as I've been on. And he's just been asking a lot of questions of people. For example, like my parents just paid off their mortgage. Um, they've been in their house now. And, and he was like, can, can we talk about mortgages? So like, how much was your mortgage? How much was your, your property taxes? How much? Because he doesn't have a house and he's not going to own a house for the foreseeable future. But it's something he never knew. And so he just asked questions about it. You know, I was talking about my podcast that I ran and how I'm starting to monetize it. And he's like, can we just talk about that? And he's just asking questions, he asked questions about the IRA. Like, okay, where do you have your IRA? Like literally, how do you log on? Literally, how do you pick the funds? Can you, can you see it? And I said, and so he's asking questions and I would say, um, be like my brother and just ask questions. If you don't know something, don't be the guy at the party who just kind of laughs and nods along. If you don't know something, be like, raise your hand and be like, this is an area I, I just, I'm not familiar with. Can you? Can you explain a little bit? it's going to be and then you know it you know your your friends, your colleagues the, the people around you um are are a host of knowledge. there's things you know that they don't know, and there's things they know that you don't know and if if you're not um if you're not going to ask uh you're not you're not going to know and so I would just that's the that's the advice is just be willing to ask questions if you don't know something don't be afraid to look like you don't know something. It's okay not to know.
0: When I was working in theater, I would ask my fellow designers, what are you getting paid? Because, you know, I want to make sure I'm getting paid correctly, because I have been underpaid sometimes. And the people that don't tell me, I do not appreciate that. I do understand, but I also do not appreciate it. Well,
1: here's the piece of that. You're going to ask, and there are going to be people that are going to bristle, right? Like my parents. My parents really bristled at money, right? They really didn't want to know. And that's why I think my brother felt comfortable enough asking them, he said, Here's the house. It's paid off. I, you know, tell me what it was listed for. Tell me what you bought it for. How much was the rate? When did you refinance? You know, what did that do for you? And where are you at now? Like what's back in your bank account every month, you know, now that the, it's paid off now that you don't have to do that. There are going to be people that are going to bristle and say, no, nah, I don't really feel comfortable with that. Okay. You have to, just like you said, like you got to respect that and say, okay, great. I didn't mean anything. I'm just trying to learn. But what what's going to happen is you know, one out of every three people are gonna be willing to talk, are gonna be really excited to talk, and they're gonna be happy to share what they what they know and um and that's and that's worth it. Even if you have a couple of people shudder at it and brush you off and you say, Okay, great. Never mind. Yeah, and
0: I and I will actually say most people actually will talk about it. They might not be animated and happy to talk about it, <laughs> but but they will certainly talk about it because if you ask a question, they have to give you an answer. And so they may not have expected it. They may not have wanted to talk about it. But because you asked the question, they will say, oh, well, apparently this is a topic we should be talking about. And they will dialogue with you. So it's actually very few people who will not dialogue with you.
1: And don't let that dissuade you. If there are people who are not interested, okay, great. Money means different things to different people. So let them have that and you, you move on. But just be willing to just talk about it and ask questions.
0: Where can people find out more about you?
1: Yeah, so you can uh, visit my website chipclose.com. It's c h i p k l o s e.com. Uh there you can see my whole business, link to my podcast that's called Restaurant Strategy. Uh, we talk all about marketing and uh, the lessons certainly apply to any business. It is focused on restaurants um, but if you want to, you know, an eye into that industry, you can do that. Uh, and then you can check out Roseberry and Close. That is my um that is my writing website with my collaborator Ben Roseberry rosemaryenclosed.com and you can see some of the stuff we're working on Uh, videos you can listen to some of our songs Uh, really proud of the work that we've done we've just finished a new draft of our musical Picture Perfect Um, it's twice been a finalist at NAMT Uh, it's one of these like Always a Bridesmaid, Never the Bride. And I'm really excited to uh, to get that show, to get this new draft of the show out into the world. Uh, so we're recording a bunch of demos uh, over the course of uh, March and April. So really excited to kind of put that one back out into the world. But that's where you can learn about me. Chip, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your time and your thoughts and your insights. It was absolutely wonderful. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, It's a really great thing you're doing. Keep talking about it because I think it's helping people. That was our interview with Chip Close. My takeaways were it's never too late
0: to start. If you don't have a Roth IRA right now, it's okay. You can open it up today and a year from now, you'll be glad you did. Whatever the balance in your life is between your art and your financial stability, that's perfect. You're not less of an artist because you have a stable paycheck and you're not less of a worker because you also create art. My final takeaway is to be intentional. There are artists who have money. You can be one too if you educate yourself on finance and take steps to become financially stable in a way that works with your art. Find the rest of this interview over at Patreon. Remember the $3 level is going away in May and the lowest level will become $5. If you want in at the $3 level, become a patron before May 5th. Do that at patreon.com artisticfinance If becoming a patron isn't for you, which it should be, so go become a patron. But if it's not, please do me a favor and tell one friend about this podcast. Or find us on Instagram or Facebook at artistic finance and share one of our posts with your friends. That's how most of our listeners have found us, so thank you in advance. And also, we have a TikTok. I don't know how many of our listeners are on TikTok, but if so, go find us at Artistic Finance. That's it for today. Until next time, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Find more information on our website, artisticfinance.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and please leave a rating and review. Artistic Finance is produced in New York City by Nicole and Ethan Steinle. Producing consultant Anne Nygren Doherty. Graphics and website by Josh Cutler. Music by Chang Liu.